I'm joined by Dr. Leoba Geis, who works at the Historisches Institute in Cologne. Leoba did a PhD on the Kingdom of Sicily and published as a book in 2014 and is now working on a habilitation called Moral Economy, Ecclesiastical Office and the Discourse of Simony in the Early Middle Ages. Welcome, Leoba. Well, thank you, Charles, for the invitation. Well, thank you, Leoba, for finding the time. Let me begin with a very simple, maybe quite a, a simple but very big question. What is simony? Well, basically, simony has uh, two related meanings. On the one hand, it stands for the forbidden buying or selling of an ecclesiastic office. For example, when a candidate uh, for a vacant bishopric deliberately tries to bribe the electors or the secular authorities or the archbishop who will later consecrate him to become the next bishop. And on the other hand, simony means trading of sacraments. For example, when a priest baptizes a person only after receiving some money. It's really interesting that this term simony goes back to a figure in the New Testament. So in the Acts of the Apostles, a man called Simon the Magician sees the apostles laying hands on the people of Samaria and thereby giving them the Holy Spirit. And Simon, who thinks he's a great one, uh, goes to the apostles and offers them money to receive the power and to be able to perform the same tasks. But then the Apostle Peter rebukes him and uh, says the famous sentence, and I quote, thy money perish with thee because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. So that's the, the story. And uh, what does the story tell us about simony? I think, first of all, the Holy Spirit is a charismatic power that works for free and is an unpurchasable gift that cannot be sold or bought. And in the Bible, it's interesting that we can find more comparable hints. For example, Christ saying to the apostles, freely you have received, freely give. And so this is really a, a main topic. If the Holy Spirit is not for sale, then no material transactions can made or may be made in the course of an ecclesiastical ordination or the administration of the sacraments for which the working of the Holy Spirit is a constitutive element. And second, a person like Simon the Magician, who wants to turn the effects of the Holy Spirit into a monetary transaction, turns himself against God because he believes to be capable of influencing the Holy Spirit. So we have that aspect of sheer impossibility to influence the Holy Spirit and the aspect of Simon's hybris, which are the main clues for our simony context. If we now look into the Middle Ages, we can see that our modern term simony has no Latin equivalent. And that's very interesting in terms of an exactly defined and commonly used word. From a researcher's point of view, this is always a problem when common terms for a gift or monetary transaction are used in the sources. For example, munus, donum, pretium, pecunia. Um, and that without an indication that simony might be in the author's mind. Here then we have to contextualize each source carefully to decide whether a legitimate gift is mentioned, which aims for example at securing a person's livelihood, or the author of the text alludes to a monetary transaction in terms of a claimed and forced gift that can be interpreted as simony. That's fascinating. I mean, what's, what's interesting there is, yes, OK, so we might be able to see simony even when it's not mentioned in the in the sources, then you can kind of yeah. detect it. And that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's not a common word, is it, these days? At least not in English. Um, but of course, the issue of cash being used to to obtain 
privileges or, or, or benefits uh, where it's not appropriate. That is very much still around. And certainly in the UK, there's there's lots of uh, scandals about that all the time, really. I mean, I, as we record this, there's probably a cash for honours scandal happening right at the moment. So, yeah, so it's kind of illustration. I mean, obviously, we don't really worry these days um, about the mediation of the Holy Spirit so much, which is actually central, obviously, to cyber So it's, it's not quite the same thing as, as corruption, but you can kind of see the, the resonances. Um, yeah. yeah, but this is it's a huge field, isn't it, Simon? As you said, and it goes back, as you said, all the way back to Simon Magus, Simon the Magician in the Bible. How are you approaching it then? I mean, your project is called, as I said, Moral Economy uh, and the Discourse of Simon. Is that your, your, your second kind of moral economy approach to it? Well, my project is concerned with the early medieval discourses on simony in the period between 600 and 1050. And on the one hand, it seems reasonable for me to begin with the pontificate of Gregory the Great, as he brought together the previous late antique considerations about simony and became an essential authority for dealing with this problem, especially in canon law. And he was the very first to discuss simony in any detail and to declare simony to be a heresy. What does this mean? Gregory understood heresy in a broad sense. It comprised not only misinterpreted dogmas, but also challenges to Christian truth, normative transgressions, and in some wrong moral behavior. In this respect, Gregory could draw a link from heresy to simony, because this blaspheming banality of the Holy Spirit challenged not only, only its value, but also attack the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. And this meaning of simony as a heresy could therefore be considered as a serious crime that had to be punished appropriately. And so Gregory is not only very influential for this um, consideration, but also because he expanded the notion of simony to include bribery, flattery and favors. Now, not only the transaction of gifts or money could be interpreted as simony, but also any immaterial forms of manipulation. And so we have a wide range of possibilities for simony. I start here with Gregory, and then um, for me, a logical endpoint of the project can be established uh, with the mid 11th century, since a broad and extensive research landscape is already available for the subsequent period. We might come to that later. Geographically, my project focuses on the Carolingian and post-Carolingian realms, but I also include Italy as a region of comparison, as there was an intense discussion about simony there, especially in the 10th century. And the role of the papacy, I think, is really interesting with regard to the question whether the Pope acted as an authority on simony even before the mid-11th century. So this is interesting, but it shows how simony kind of, as an issue, it ties together all kinds of different things, doesn't it, across different geographies, but also, yeah, papal history and and Italian history in the 10th century and all these different things are kind of relevant to a history of simony. And I think that point you made, how the kind of discourse of office here is very, you know, Gregory's definition of how you can legally obtain or, or morally obtain an office is very tightly restrained. As you say, it's not just no cash in hand. It's not just no brown envelopes, but it's also, as you say, any promise or um, or indication that you might reward or favour later at some point. So it's really kind of a very restrictive definition. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's interesting, it's... isn't it, that he calls it heresy, as you say, because we don't, we generally don't, we think of heresy as a doctrinal question, but uh, yeah, but yeah. Gregory, you think, had a broader, a broader sense. Yeah, and it's wrong moral behaviour. And so uh, that's the clue for him to to declare it as a heresy. Yes, 
course. And I think it's really interesting not to see this this period and this uh, topic uh, in a sense of a history of Taiwanese. So, so I'm not interested in a kind of criminal history that attempts to collect all the available cases of simony in order to assess the prevalence of simony in the early Middle Ages. And I'm also not interested in an economic study that tries to quantify the sums which were used for simonistic actions. Rather, the aim is to focus on the level of perception. How did, for example, the contemporaries perceive the phenomenon? How did they interpret it and, if necessary, try to deal with it? What could be the motivation for simony? And to what extent did those involved pursue simony intentionally? How could they distinguish between legal economic transactions and simonistic behavior? And in this context, it's really interesting uh, which role did simony play, for example, during the Carolingian reform with regard to the tension between economic interests on the one hand and normative ideas about the ecclesiastical ecclesiastical office on the other. And here we come back to this concept of moral economy. So um, these are some of my questions I'm interested in, and I try to clarify to what extent simony was actually regarded by contemporaries as a socially impermissible, questionable or failed gift-giving practice, or whether we can identify cases in which it was understood as an accepted behavior and I think uh, that's really a new perspective on Simon. Absolutely. I mean, this is something, isn't it, which people working on corruption in all periods, and I say, if, if we think of Simon as a kind of corruption, people working on corruption in all periods, it's very difficult to count it. It's very difficult to measure yeah. it because it's, it's fundamentally, as you said, it's a question of perception. I think, yeah, the old point that people are using simony to think about the boundaries of gift giving. And because gifts oblige, and that's the point of gifts, isn't it? Is they, um, but obviously, yeah, yeah there. What what are the limits? What 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 are the permissible limits of that? So that's yeah. I think that that sounds like a fascinating way to take it. I want to come back to this question of periodization. Yeah, but this podcast is nominally anyway about the 11th century, and of course, your project begins with Gregory the Great, who's sixth uh, century, and goes up all the way into the 11th century, and you stop there. And I wonder if you could say why you stop there. I mean, you've already said it's partly because. There is a large literature on simony from about 1050 onwards. I mean, is there actually a change in, do you, do you think there's a change in perceptions of simony around that point as well? Yes, this is a really great question. Indeed, the prevalent perspective on simony is that it was practiced, tolerated and sometimes reflected before the mid-11th century without systematic and sustainable attempts to deal with this problem. In contrast to this somehow indifferent attitude towards simony, the contemporaries of the mid-11th century onwards developed a vivid interest in combating simony and simonists as well. Um, we have a few historians, for example, Timothy Reuter, who describes this mid-11th century as a turning point. And for him, now a moral panic about simony broke out. It was regarded as omnipresent and could be used as an all-purpose accusation against opponents. And I think this is really an interesting idea and leads to the question, how can we explain this situation in which awareness of simony as an ecclesiastical and social problem is increasing? And in research, there are multiple explanations for this development. I will only mention a few to make this clear. Uh, first, for example, the intense discussion about uh, Libertas Ecclesiae that means the demand for the liberation of the church from all worldly influence and the 
increasing autonomy of the church, especially with regard to the propriety churches or the growing commercialization of the European economy in the 11th century, or a new emphasis on papal universality and development of authorities for the enforcement of canonical norms, such as the papal legates, or a changed culture of discourse and communication in this respect that uh, we have in the 11th century um, new forms of text, the so-called Streitschriften, um, these texts which are more interested in publicity, propaganda and uh, polemics, or a changed perspective of contemporaries on simony with regard to the validity of simonistic ordinations and sacraments. And all these are arguments to show that this mid-11th century is such a turning point as Timothy Reuter said. One might discuss each of these statements in detail, but I will take just two or three as an example to illustrate differences and similarities between the early Middle Ages and the 11th century. First of all, let's start with the sources. In the early Middle Ages, they are indeed different from those in the 11th century. Uh, the early period does not know individual and extensive works or pamphlets arguing against simony and simonists or addressing individual problems of simony, such as Peter Damien with his Liber Gratissimus or Humboldt of Silver Candida with his Libri Tres Adversus Simoniacus. The discourses on simony during this early period took place in other scattered and disparate textual forms, for example in historiography, hagiography, letters, homilies, normative texts. Thus, the issue does not first surface as prominently and loudly as it did in the 11th century, but it is constantly present and discussed even in contexts that at first glance cannot necessarily be associated with a simonistic offense. And I think this is one major difference. And if we take another example, uh, the papal authority, we can see that, of course, uh, the papacy up to the mid-11th century was only occasionally engaged in combating simony, concentrating instead on other issues, as for example in the 9th century um, marriage disputes or the relationship to the Byzantine Empire. In individual cases, however, the papacy was certainly involved as an authority, either, either by advising on the procedure for deposing a simonistic bishop or by demanding the need for ecclesiastical appointments free of simonistic practices. And I think one relevant argument is that we have to keep in mind that even the papacy of the 11th century could not expand its authority to all U European regions with equal intensity and could not combat simony everywhere. If we take, for example, southern Italy, the popes there had only limited success in combating simonistic actions. And I think here we should uh, not see Europe as an entity, but as uh, different regions in which the battle against simony went into different directions and uh, went with uh, different intensity. But there are only two examples to show you that, yes, uh, there are differences between the 11th uh, century and the early Middle Ages, but we should also see that much of the later discourse, which seems to erupt like an explosion, is already grounded before, but sometimes in different structural and intellectual perspectives. 
And this is really important for my research to assess the early medieval discourses on their own terms and not to regard them as insignificant and insufficient precursors of the so-called Gregorian reform. I mean, I, it's fascinating, but I mean, you've worked, I know you've worked for example, you published um, on, on simony in, in Borkard of Worms, so the Bishop Borkard yeah. of Worms, who writes this canon law collection. And yeah, I mean, as you show, there's actually quite a lot of simony discourse in there. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily, it, it's not a pamphlet about simony, I mean, by any means. So it's not quite the same as, as the later pamphlets, but, you know, that's not a lack. That's Simony is very diffuse, but it's kind of omnipresent as a concern. It comes across really, really, really clear. And I thought also this point you're making, 11th century Europe is, of course, a artificial construct uh, in two ways, right? I mean, the 11th century is, 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 is an artificial slice of time. Europe is, of course, also, I mean, as you said, not everywhere is changing at the same speed. As it's, it's a big area. You wouldn't expect that to. So, and that's something yeah. it's important to remember, right? So, yeah, southern Italy is different from, say, Saxony or, or ever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, just briefly, yeah, but, um, because you mentioned Southern Italy, you, of course, you did a first project, didn't you, on, on, on Southern Italy, as I mentioned, on, on the Kingdom of Sicily, 12th century, uh, 12th and 13th century. Um, and now you're working on something, and this is the Habilitation, isn't it? I know lots of listeners won't, aren't familiar with, with, with this system, uh, which is very, it's common in Germany, isn't it? Um, what is the, the Habilitation? Yeah, uh, this uh, Habilitation in German is a classical path to a professorship. So it marks the end of the second and last qualification phase after the PhD. And um, those who successfully finish this formal exam uh, have proven that they entirely master their academic field and they are awarded the teaching qualification. After all, you are a so-called privatdozent and then you can apply for a vacant uh, professorship. During this habilitation period, the primary aim is to write the so-called second book, which is the integral part of the formal examination I mentioned before. So usually the postdocs at German universities only have fixed-term contracts, so it is necessary to pass this habilitation in order to achieve a permanent position at the university in form of a professorship. So it's almost like, I mean, so from a perspective, from a UK perspective, it's essentially like you have to do a second PhD. And, and it has to be on a different topic as well, isn't it, right? So you're moving from, uh, in your case, 12th, 13th century, uh, southern Italy, or, sorry, kingdom of Sicily, to the early medieval history of simony. So it's quite a big shift in, in, in content and, and you know, method. That's right. Uh, the second book offers the opportunity to demonstrate the breadth and, of interests and knowledge. And its topic is usually, as you said, not related to the research question and field of the dissertation. The aim is to overcome one-sided specializations and to prove oneself as an expert and participant in several research fields. And the second book is also considered as a uniform and fair standard for deciding on competing candidates for a professorship. But of course, um, it's not always easy, especially after the dissertation. You start again from scratch and have to work hard to find the second topic. Talk of which, so maybe your, your, your topic is simony. Uh, I know obviously you're writing the second book. Um, can I turn as a final question then? I mean, what are you actually working on now? I mean, uh, an article or, or, or are you actually literally as we, as we speak writing, writing the draft of the book? Um, well, um, I'm currently working on a, a book chapter and an article as well. Um, so the book chapter is in its early stages and analyzes the discourses on simony in the 10th century, especially in the works of Rato Verona, Arthur Vercelli, and 
Abu of Lori. And in previous research studies, the 10th century in Italy has been regarded as a region of intense humanistic abuse. And in this context, the voices of Rata of Verona and Artofocelli have been interpreted in part as anticipating the later reform statements in the 11th century. Um, so Atto as a forerunner of Peter Damien and Rata as a forerunner of Humbert. What I try to do is to contextualize these texts in the 10th century and to regard them as products of their own, reflecting simony in the context of the need for ecclesiastical reform, but also as a result of conflicts with secular authorities or between monastic and clerical ambitions, and this is particularly interesting with regard to Abu of Fleury. And the article I'm working on focuses on the 9th and 10th century in West Frankish regions in France and deals with the few known cases of monistic accusations in the early Middle Ages. In the 9th century, we have a rather famous case in Brittany when four or five bishops were accused of simony and then were finally deposed after a complicated trial. And this case is particularly interesting as the Breton ruler Nominue was intensively involved and he used this accusation to replace the bishops who were under the Archbishop of Tours by his own candidates who refused to belong to the Frankish episcopate. This case study I use as a starting point for two aspects. First, I'm interested in the strategic use of simony accusations in political and personal contexts. And uh, second, I'm interested in what these cases of social practice can tell us about the concrete use of canon law in these situations. For example, which statements of the canon law were used and how did the contemporaries try to deal with contradictions between different canons and which authorities did they contact for help, etc. In the end, the article will show, I hope, that even before the middle of the 11th century, simony could be used in certain constellations as an instrument to enforce individual interests. And uh, on the other hand, it becomes apparent that even the early medieval contemporaries struggled with the questions of how simony could be determined at all on the basis of the available canon law material, how an appropriate sanctioning of a simonist was to be achieved and how divergent normative statements were to be used in the process. And I think that's really interesting because all these aspects here will later be discussed by the contemporaries of the 11th and 12th century. And we see here that uh, early medieval texts are also struggling with the same with these problems, but as I said, not as prominently and loudly as then later in the 11th century. Yeah, the 11th century does not invent simony. This piece, uh, Lieberon, uh, the strategic use of simony, is yeah. uh, that sounds absolutely fascinating how, yes, the an accusation of simony is used as a weapon then in the in 9th century, in yeah. 9th century, uh, in 9th century Brittany. Uh, so that, that's, a, well, I hugely look forward to that. Lieberon, it's been a, a great pleasure to talk to you about simony and, and your work. And um, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Charles.